As I was closing up for the night, I thought about all the movies that had been discussed in the spoiler room. That was when the temperature in the room changed. I went to the thermostat and it said it was 52 degrees KB. Suddenly I found myself in a maze of movie posters. No matter what direction I went, each path led me back to one actor, Kevin Bacon. That was when it was clear what I had to do. When I snapped out of it, I added bacon to the menu. 2020 was going to be an interesting year in the spoiler room. Yes, my friends, it is 52 Degrees KB here in the Spoiler Room, and we are continuing our special series where we're doing that variation on the classic Six Degrees to Kevin Bacon game. And tonight, we have a film that is, uh, <laughs> well, if you grew up in the 80s, you knew the name John Hughes, and you knew the movies he produced and, uh, well, wrote at least, if not directed and wrote. In this one, he did write it, and it is Pretty in Pink from 1986. Now, how is that connected to our previous film, which I discussed last week, Less Than Zero? Well, there's actually two connections, folks. That's right. We had, uh, we had James Spader, and we also had Andrew McCarthy in Less Than Zero, and they both end up also in uh, Pretty in Pink, which, you know, some could make an argument this was a prequel to Less Than Zero. But uh, <laughs> I digress <laughs> tonight. I'm very excited because I have a new crew member in the spoiler room with us and a returning one as well. So first off, we'll introduce our new crew member. Say hello, everyone, uh, to Ian Simmons. How you doing, Ian? I'm doing fantastic. It's great to be uh, great to be in the spoiler room. I, I'm a little intimidated. He's a Chicago movie critic, and you know he gets to interview all these really cool people. So I'm a little intimidated here tonight, but we'll we'll do our best. So I'm just folk, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, next to Ian, she has back once again with us in the spoiler room. Always a pleasure to have the multi-talented Tanya Atomic. Hello, Tanya. How are you doing? Hello, I'm great. Happy to be here. So happy to have you in the spoiler room tonight to talk pretty in pink. And you know what, Tanya? I think tonight, since Ian is, is new to the spoiler room podcast, I think uh, if you're open to it, Ian, how about you give the synopsis uh, for pretty in pink? Well, now I have to go back and watch the movie. Oh, sorry. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, um, sure. Uh, it uh, takes place in like 1986-ish. Uh, if I, if I recall correctly, I saw Elgin on the, the back of the street sweeper. Are we to believe this is Elgin, Illinois? I think so, yes. Uh, okay. They never really Good. mentioned the city, but yeah, I think it is. Because my wife, uh, we watched it together and uh, on Molly Ringwald's birthday, actually, uh, <laughs> which was yesterday. Um, and she had mentioned, oh, it takes place in Elgin. And I said, is that the city or is that just like the brand of the street sweeper? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, not that that matters. Uh, it is a, a film that's sort of a, a love triangle between uh, Andy, who's played by Molly Ringwald. She's a, a high school. I'm assuming she's a junior because she makes a big deal about how um, her love interest, uh, the boy she's crushing on, Blaine, is a senior. Mm. Um, so she's either a sophomore or a junior. I don't think she's a freshman. But uh, so she comes from literally the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, <laughs> she's, uh, you know, she's sort of lower middle class. Uh, she goes to a high school that has sort of a lot of mixed incomes, but there is uh, a 
population of rich kids, the richies as they call them, uh, who are obscenely wealthy, uh, as personified by Andrew McCarthy's Blaine and James Spader's Steph, who is Blaine's, I guess, best friend, but I really don't understand how even after watching this movie. Um, so the love triangle comes in in the form of Ducky, who is, uh, you know, Andy's best friend since they were like little kids. Uh, he's majorly crushing on her, but she doesn't really see him as anything more than a friend. Um, and uh, so, yeah, throughout the, the hour and a half or so, we see these sort of like class and romantic struggles uh, play out. It's uh, John Hughes written film, but directed by Howard Deutsch, uh, who is notable. Well, he married Leah Thompson uh, some years later, uh, and they had a child by the name of Zoe Deutsch, who uh, fans of the Zombieland franchise might recognize as having been in Zombieland Double Tap. Uh, she's a fantastic uh, actress in her own right. Um, and uh, yeah, that's just a bit of trivia that I, when I saw Howard Deutsch in the screen, I'm like, wait a second, is that the, yep, sure enough it was. Um, but then I put down my phone and enjoyed the rest of Pretty in Pink. So I think, I think I've got most of what we're talking about. Oh, and yep. uh, a record store. This is like nine years before Empire Records. Um, I like to think that Empire Records stole its uh, motif from Pretty in Pink. So there you go. I I would argue that as well after watching it. Uh, Annie Potts in a role that you might not expect to see her in since everybody associates her with uh, Ghostbusters. Um, but uh, yeah, as the record store owner. So uh, I have to ask, we'll, we'll start with you since you did give the synopsis. Uh, Ian, your initial thoughts or your initial feeling with Pretty in Pink, how, how, when the credits rolled, how did you uh, feel about this when you first saw it? When I first saw it or when I watched it, because uh, I've seen it a few times over the mm -hmm. years, but, um, you know, I, when I was a kid, I didn't quite get it because, uh, I don't know, it didn't have the, the same John Hughes misfit quality as, you know, 16 Candles uh, or Breakfast Club or even mm -hmm. Ferris Bueller. It is more of a, you know, a drama, even though these are high school kids. Um, there's, there's not a whole lot of hijinks. You got Ducky singing in the record shop, I guess, but you know, mostly it's just people trying to deal with some pretty big, uh, issues. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really get it as a kid watching it now as an adult. Um, I was really struck by Harry Dean Stanton who plays Andy's father, uh, their, their relationship. I mean, I just, he as an actor is so fantastic and we lost him i think a year or two ago unfortunately but he was you know 90 years old so i guess he had a good life but uh you know the care that he shows towards uh his daughter their complicated relationship because you know his wife and her mother walked out of them i mean normally in these kinds of movies when a parent is absent because they died or there was a divorce or something but no that the mother straight up abandoned them causing all sorts of weird underlying issues that kind of play out uh, through the movie. So that's what I, that was my big takeaway from it uh, this time. Um, and along with uh, James Spader's immaculately feathered hair, which I hadn't appreciated <laughs> until this viewing. So that's, <laughs> that's what I got out of uh, pretty in pink. Please. The eighties into the early nineties, James Spader only had one hairstyle. I, <laughs> <laughs> that is not true, because if you look at 1987, the year that he did um, Less Than Zero, so it's the year after this, he also did a movie called Mannequin, also with Andrew McCarthy, in which he had that wonderful, like, parted down the middle, kind of flat, 
like oh. dweeb haircut. Do you remember him in That's, that movie? Okay, yep, you're right. I, I stand corrected. He did occasionally <laughs> alter it, so you're right. Yeah, he did. But, uh, but but I think that might have been the exception because I, <laughs> I I had forgotten that that was James Spader because mm-hmm. I, I knew him from you know the the 80s you know douchebag role that he came to like personify and he's still an asshole in in mannequin but a different kind you know he's like this corporate little weasel um but age is just i'm sure we'll talk about this later in the show but uh the ages of these characters i mean the actors in pretty and pink are all fantastic but they are all except for molly ringwald who i think was 18 when she made the movie everyone else is like 26 years old and it shows yeah we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit uh tanya how about you when you first saw it uh versus now any uh changes how did you feel when you first saw it you know i this is a favorite of mine i i really do like this movie i've seen it several times mm-hmm. over the years um many 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 times <laughs> um <laughs> Seeing it again, I mean, it's still, I think it holds up. A lot of the emotional content still holds up. And I think, like Ian said, the thing, even as a child, because I saw this, I was very young the first time I saw this. It was close to when it first came out. Um, It was either on TV or we rented it, and I was um, a, a kid. And even then, the thing that struck me, like Ian said, the the relationship between Harry D. Stanton, the father character, and Andy, the Molly Ringwald character, was really the the heart of the movie and the thing that kind of stuck out and was kind of like something that tied everything together emotionally and um, still holds up and I think still stands out uh, upon viewing now as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of other things that I think are fun and looking back at the 80s were a lot of fun. You know, when I was young, I was kind of like Andy. Mm-hmm. And so I really related to her. You know, she was smart in school, but a little bit different, like to wear vintage clothes and make her own clothes. I mean, I was just totally like that. Not like one of the richer kids teased a lot, especially for her clothes. I mean, that was definitely me. I related to it. And um and it's interesting now. I relate more to the Annie Potts character <laughs> now that I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I was Andy Young, and then I was um, Iona now. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I, I really um, the movie really resonates with me. I think there's two huge flaws in the film, mm-hmm. but mm. other than that, <laughs> it really. Well, now, you, now you piqued my interest. Uh, we'll, we'll get to your flaws at, uh, next, but uh, okay. I, I, I just want to say that, uh, okay, I was a boy, I was about uh, 11, so no, I didn't watch this movie when it first came out. Uh, just not appealing to me at that age. Um, mm. You know, um, I, I liked Ferris Bueller's. I knew Ferris Bueller. And Breakfast Club, I loved. So I knew the name John Hughes even at that age. But Pretty in Pink, I was like, eh. So I hadn't watched it uh, for many years. And then I, I watched it later on on cable and enjoyed it. And, and watching it now again for the show, this is part of the reason why I'm doing this whole series is visiting some of these movies that I've only seen bits and pieces or been a long time um i totally agree i think a lot of people uh, might miss out on the whole relationship between andy and her dad and the the way those two play off each other in this film is very touching and very uh solid and harry harry dean stanton is so good in this role and it is unusual that 
it's the mom who walked out on them. Because, I mean, we've seen it in the 80s. Usually it's the guy. The guy was the mm. asshole who abandoned the family, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, yeah. he, he's the guy who who had the, the main problem that left the family, and it was up to, to mom, Fenfer. So I thought that was a really interesting kind of, you know, turning that on its head a little bit. And it, it wasn't even like the mom here left Andy and her dad under, like, some kind of good pretenses, like she had to go, you know, take care of a sick uh, parent and didn't return or whatever. She just up and left them. <laughs> well, right. And and to that point, it's not like from what we see uh, of Jack, who's the Harry Dean Stanton character, it's not like he was a raging alcoholic or abusive or anything like that where the mom felt she had to escape. She just, you know, she left what seemed to be a very loving home life i mean he was still in love with her and we can see that towards the end of the towards the end of the film um so yeah there's a big question there that it's a tidbit in a mass market teen romantic you know drama which is one of the things i think makes it so special because i really care about all the details yeah well i mean that that's classic hughes though i mean people talk about oh what do you talk about hughes i'm like he has a way of writing i mean on its on its surface you look at it it's a basic teen you know love triangle story but if you dig just underneath or pay attention to the side characters and these side things going on you know just like the relationship between uh, andy and uh ionis uh there's kind of i know they're friends but there's almost a mom figure or an aunt, a fun aunt figure with her. Maybe not necessarily mom, but with, with you know, Ionis that goes beyond just a, a casual friendship with those two as well, where she's actually giving advice and stuff as well. So, yeah, there's some interesting dynamics in here, which is why I always love Hughes's scripts, at least, because characters that he writes are always interesting. Even if the plot is basic, you really watch it for the characters and then, of course, the performances, I think. Um, yeah. So, Tanya, you said there's two major flaws in this. I'm very curious, uh, with you being a fan, uh, what what are these flaws? I, I want to hear this. Well, this is, um, for me, a flaw. Sure. <laughs> no, that's my opinion. Yeah. Um, but one of the main flaws is, you know, we see her at the beginning, and the, she's talking to her dad, and he's saying, wow, look at your outfit. And she's talking about how she made her outfit. And she talks to other people about, you know, making her clothes. And we see that that's a big part of her life. And um, and then at the end of the movie, she's making her prom dress out of this beautiful, you know, vintage 60s dress. And then this kind of like, you know, overly frilly one that her dad gives her with lots of lace and stuff. And then what she comes out with is just like not cute. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Molly Ringwald did not like the dress she was given at the end. Um, I'm not, I have no fashion sense whatsoever, but I actually totally agree, uh, Tanya, the buildup that they get to this film and you think she's, you know, a designer. And usually the trope is she comes out with just this dress that you're just like, holy crap, that belongs on the fashion runway. And this one she comes out with and you're like, you need a belt. Um. Yeah, there's no shape to it whatsoever. Like the top part, you know, they first reveal it the top, and there's this, it's lacy and yeah. it's kind of cute, and they're it's in got the a cool sleeve. collar to it, yeah, or the choker kind of collar thing, yeah. And then when they reveal the whole thing, there's absolutely no shape to it. It looks like she's just like wearing a giant like pillowcase. <laughs> 
it's funny. My my wife said the exact same thing, and you know, there when she is in close up, and you've got the kind of the the neck, you know, or the the bust, it looks really striking. But then they cut to a faraway shot, and you're like, oh, just just go back to the close up, please. <laughs> Right. And I think, and you know, at the beginning, she's like, I made the rest of my outfit. She has like this vest, which was really complicated to do. Right. And some other pieces, you know, and you think she could have done more with the dress, you know? Well, yeah. Well, her fashion statement throughout, I mean, you know, with the clothes that she wears, that she designs herself, you can tell they, they're designed, but I like the fact that they aren't like we've seen in some past films when someone's designing their own clothes looking like something out of Harley Quinn's closet, you know, uh, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? For a drama, it's, it, they were her style though. Yeah. The, what she wears in the beginning is a, it, really impressive. And you're like, and this may sound superficial, but this is a part of the plot folks. This is, this is, they work this in that this is her thing. And this dress is supposed to be the big reveal. And you're like, that <laughs> I feel like that's everyone's response, you know, like really? Well, maybe it's maybe I'm, I'm going out on a limb here. She decided to go to the prom almost as an act of rebellion, mm. um, but she wasn't going with the person that she ultimately really wanted to go with. So maybe that that bit of heartbreak, that little bit of uncertainty, worked its way into the dress. That was the belt that was missing. Ah. Like if she had, if she had gone if she had gone with Blaine, yeah, his his, his arm would be her belt, right? Yeah. <laughs> There you go. There we go. Now we're really digging. A class made of human knuckles. Yeah. There you go. What what was the other flaw, Tanya? The other flaw, and I I really think this is in the writing, and I know why this happened. Um, Originally, I don't know if you guys know, but originally in the script that John Hughes wrote, she ends up with Ducky at the end. Mm. And. They actually did a novelization of the movie before it came out. Mm -hmm. And they finished the novelization before the movie was recut to have her go off with Blaine. And the novelization actually has the original ending where she ends up with Ducky. My friend used to have the book. And I I actually am kicking myself because I almost bought it at the grocery store. I should have. But I thought, oh, I, I don't really need that. And um, but now I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so originally she was supposed to be with Ducky, and which is I get why they changed it to Blaine. I mean, there's a whole buildup with her and Blaine, a whole huge buildup, and then it just kind of thuds, you know, if if she never you know reconciles with him. But the part that I have a problem with is when. Um, you know, Jackie's like, go to him, you know, he's accepting it and showing her he really cares about her happiness. And then he turns around and there's Christy Swanson and he's like, okay, I'm fine. Uh, <laughs> I mean, she, she was giving him the eye. And when Buffy gives you the eye, you, you know, you don't want to get, get a steak. <laughs> oh, I, I get that <laughs> I just, I mean, It's just that he's immediately okay. Yeah. With well, I, 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 go ahead, I'm Ian. sorry, go ahead. No, I see. Go ahead, Ian. I was going to say a couple of things struck me about that that moment. A, this is uh, eight years I think before the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. So, how long has Christy Swanson been in high school? Um, <laughs> well, this was her first role, I think, actually. So, wow. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, the other the other thing is, you know, it could be because 
Ducky never gets any kind of attention from the opposite sex throughout the entire movie. So Andy is the only one who pays many kind of attention that isn't outright, you know, disdain or harassment. So when he goes through his ugly duckling, you know, transformation, he gets the she's all that moment where he shows up to the big dance looking all dapper and cool aside from, you know, his kind of crappy shoes. Uh, you know, that that is his transformation and someone is finally noticing him. So, yeah, he's kind of accepting that Andy is going to go off with Blaine. But, you know, in that moment, he's not completely devastated when someone catches him across the room and says, hey, you're kind of interesting. You want to dance? Um, not to say they're going to end up together, but I thought it was kind of a sweet moment. I, I am interested, though, Tanya, do you know about the adaptation? Like, does it just do they just end up together? They go into the dance and they dance and that's it. Or is there any kind of a confrontation with Blaine? I mean, that's that's kind of a bad uh, choice of words but do they have any kind of reconciliation or, or talk of the dance at all i since i did not buy the book at the grocery store <laughs> she doesn't know. Don't yeah. know i only know because um you know my friend who read the book told me and then i mm. heard you know, i looked it up later or something and found out why but i don't know actually the events of the of the story okay I'm going to have to Google that and then find out because I'm, I'm deadly curious now. What's really odd about that, I'm glad you brought up the Ducky character because it's it's funny. Anthony Michael Hall didn't want to want the role. They were going to give it to him, and he's like, I don't want to be typecasted. And apparently it was too much like 16 Candles, so he's like, no. And so they give it to John Cryer, who actually, side note, makes one of the best Lex Luthers ever. But uh, besides <laughs> that... Oh, my um, God. <laughs> Uh, in in the TV show, it he almost has more growth in some ways than Molly Ringwald's character Andy, uh, in a, in some ways because yeah he he does have that moment at the end when he shows up, but he shows up all looking with a better style than her, um, but he's <laughs> he has know, a belt he's got a belt, um. But he shows up and he's got her on his arm, but you get the feeling like he's come to terms like this isn't going to happen, but we're going to show up anyway because he's being there for her because, you know, she shows up alone and she's questioning whether or not she should go in or not. And Ducky yeah. is actually kind of the brave one, the one who's played, you know, hi, Spike. Hello, Spike. Hi, hi, hi. You know, with her <laughs> for most of the movie. So for him to take this move, it's almost, you know, just as much about maybe his growth um and mm-hmm. i and do we know is this where the where the term friend zone came from because if there was <laughs> ever someone who was put in friend zone it was ducky <laughs> i mean i feel totally bad for this character but uh you know what do you think of, uh, of ducky in here would you say that maybe this is kind of his story of growth as well Sure. I, well, a couple of things. And I, that's going to be my phrase for the night because I keep thinking of like oh, pairs right. of things and <laughs> topics to shoot off from. I want to rewind the tape a bit. Sure. Um, you mentioned John Cryer makes a good Lex Luthor. Is he on the Supergirl TV show? Yeah, he. They brought as, as Lex Luthor. As Lex Luthor, they brought uh, they brought John Cryer back to make up for his performance in Supergirl the movie. And in Supergirl, he is actually Lex Luthor, and he is phenomenal. <laughs> 
Wow, okay. Because um, I think you're thinking of Superman The Quest for Peace, right? Uh, or it might have been Superman, which, whichever one he was in. I forgot which yeah, one cause it was. He, yeah, because he played Lex Luthor's nephew in that movie. As that's this, like, right, yeah. Weird valley kid, and yikes. Mm-hmm. No, that that's fascinating. I haven't watched Supergirl since uh, partway through the first season, so I'll have to check that out. Um, but as far as um, Ducky and his growth, yeah, I think this is absolutely his story. I mean, that's evidenced by the fact that we occasionally will cut to Ducky at his crappy little apartment home i don't know if he lives on his own or if his parents just are just never around but it looks almost like he's living in the inner city in a <laughs> like a crappy roach infested apartment or something um on a mattress but uh it's it's funny because uh a few years after this movie came out they did that uh, stephen king miniseries the stand mm-hmm. starring molly ringwald and um what was the the kid uh played Parker Lewis on the TV oh. show. Oh, yeah. Uh, Corey oh. Nemec. Yeah, Corey, Corey Nemec. Yeah. Yeah, he essentially played the Ducky character to Molly Ringwald in that show, too. <laughs> he he turned out to be a murderous psychopath, but yeah, he was the, the kid following around like a puppy dog. So, you know, talk about not being uh, typecast. There just seems to be <laughs> Molly Ringwald just has these roles with these guys fawning all over her. Um, but yeah, I think... I don't know if Ducky is where the friend zone term came from, but it is the classic example. You know, it still persists in pop culture today. You know, Ducky as this, you know, kind of icon. Uh, and I think that's that's touching and also <laughs> kind of sad. It, it is. You, you do feel for him. Tanya, what do you how do you feel about Ducky character? Would you say he almost has more growth than Andy in some ways? I think he definitely does. I feel like Andy is presented as someone who has is very in touch with herself from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that's kind of her charm. You know, that's kind of her thing. Like she, the reason why um, there's an issue between her and, and the Andrew McCarthy character is because the people he runs with are, you know, they live in a certain way that where they have to present themselves a certain way. And he doesn't feel like he fits in with that. And that's kind of why he's drawn to her. And that's the whole thing. Like, she's already herself. Right. And she's so much herself. And it's really about the reactions of other people to her being herself. Mm-hmm. You know, with the ducky character, he's drawn to her. And and so is, um, you know, Blaine. He's drawn to her as well. And so, in a weird way, is Steph. Like, they're all drawn to her because she is so her unapologetically herself. And um, I think Ducky, yeah, he definitely has um, a lot of growth because he has these feelings and acts, you know, out <laughs> because of them. And I think he finally, you know, gets a handle on on them towards the end. And I will say this, you know, as growing up in the 80s, being a young girl and knowing lots of girls that have watched this movie, every girl that I know that watched this movie as a young girl always likes ducky better because <laughs> mm. he's the fun guy right he's... <laughs> he's interesting he's got personality like like blaine's all right he seems nice but <laughs> he doesn't have much you know like ducky's so crazy and interesting yeah that that's a great point because i i like andrew mccarthy a lot but i think this is one of the movies where i like him the least and it mostly just has to do with uh He's he's more of a status than a character, mm-hmm. um, and you know he's also got that thing. I think it was Saturday Night Live or something did a parody of '80s heartthrobs, 
and whoever they got to play Andrew McCarthy, he was just walking around with his eyes wide open, like, <laughs> oh, right. looking like he's about to break down and cry. I mean, he, that's all he does in this movie. Even when he's smiling, he looks like he's on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Um, so, yeah, it's it's nice and sweet and everything. But in terms of, like, do I see Andy and Blaine staying together forever? Possibly. But it's going to be one of those boring <laughs> marriages. Whereas with Ducky, they're at least going to be hanging out and dancing in record shops every other weekend. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, you, you kind of, you really actually at the end, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the book, Tanya, because you watch this and you low, you kind of want Andy and Ducky to be the one at the end, not just because of Ducky, because you know Ducky would probably be better for Andy than Blaine, because through this whole thing, I still, I never feel at once, even at the end, I never feel at once that Blaine is truly into Andy for like actual like truly into her I almost get this feeling like he is fascinated by her because she's different than the crowd he runs with but not necessarily in love with her as much as maybe the idea of her and it sounds bad I know but the way his character is written it just I never quite feel that because you know I mean, he takes her to that party, and I know he's supposed to be a, and I put this in quotes, teenager, um, (laughs) (laughs) because this party looks like something out of Animal House, Um, you know, uh, you know, and he takes her, and I'm like, look, I know he's kind of a clueless teen or whatnot, but I'm like, really, dude? (laughs) This is yeah. He he has no game. He's not reading any of her signals. Right. signals as in i don't want to go i want to leave <laughs> and he's like not so subtle and he's like oh do do you want to go and she's like yes i want to go no let's go upstairs no i want to go <laughs> yeah. yeah and then and then he's like i, I guess this is a bad idea huh <laughs> and, I mean, and the fact that andy still wants to be with him after that i think is uh, kind of just a bit of movie magic. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's something that I hadn't picked up on until watching the movie this time. As you know, as an adult, um, there's a brief scene in the very beginning where Andy's going to school and she runs into Steph, and it turns out that he's been she's been blowing him off for like the entirety of high school, and yet later, when I think it's at the party, Steph is quote unquote introduced to her. And they both pretend like they don't know each other. I'm just wondering, you know, how is it that Blaine and his best friend Steph have been running around this high school for four years, and yet Steph has just never mentioned Andy, or they've never their circles have never crossed paths because they all seem to know kind of who each other are. I, I just feel like there could have been a a richer subplot exploring Steph's desire for Andy. Was it just a conquest? You know the 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 you know getting with the with the poor chick, or did he have some kind of an interest in her that maybe it's similar to whatever Blaine saw in her, like the the kind of the culture and the the spunky vibe that's not like these other rich brats that are you know <laughs> trying to get in bed with him at these at these parties. Uh, I just feel like it's kind of a lost opportunity there. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Tanya, what do you think about that? Because I totally forgot about that actually. Now that you mentioned it, Ian. That, yeah, Steph confronts her in the beginning trying to 
get with her. And then it seems like that just no one acknowledges he's ever tried that ever. Tanya, what did you think of Steph and Andy's relationship? You know, to me, that's just not personally, but that's all too familiar. Um, I When I went to high school and junior high, we had, you know, like this popular crowd or whatever. They weren't they weren't necessarily super rich, but most of them, you know, were kind of more well off. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there were the other kids and then there were the arty kids. Like I said, I mm-hmm. was kind of an arty misfit. Um, and I had other friends similar to me and I knew girls that some of the popular guys would secretly see ah. but none of their friends knew mm-hmm. and it's because they actually liked those girls or they were attracted to them or whatever but they didn't want anyone else to know because it was a status thing so ah. that definitely happened and they would never have told their friends because they would have been their friend they wouldn't want their friends to judge them because they did have to keep appearances that was the thing like me and a lot of my friends we just did what we wanted to do and so we never like became popular or whatever <laughs> mm. i mean i don't know if there was ever even a chance but um because it had to do with your clothes too and that yeah. kind of thing um but but yeah i mean this i this resonates with me also you know like um 16 candles like those kind of movies they resonate with me because i know some people didn't go to schools like that but i most certainly did where Mm -hmm. there were different classes of people and certain people had to act a certain way and made fun of other kids you know that was definitely my reality so yeah i mean i knew guys that were popular guys that would actually go out secretly with other girls that weren't and they totally hid it from everybody and I only knew because I knew the girls. Right. You know, and I think that's, not to rewrite the great John Hughes, but <laughs> I think in some of the vacuum that we're seeing with Blaine's personality, I think he could have filled that in by exploring more about what Steph was actually interested in with Andy, you know, because there are a couple of motivations that you mentioned there, Tanya, um, is, as far as if they're really interested but they feel like they can't tell their friends or if it's just some kind of like a, like a class conquest, uh, explore that with Andy. And perhaps this would feed into an ending where she ends up with Ducky and then both Steph and Blaine have to come to the terms of the fact that they are kind of these empty vessels who really messed up with the chance with the one person who could have drawn out some kind of humanity from them. Wow. I wow, like... write that. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say <laughs> you need to you need to write that. Write that now. <laughs> that... No, because mm. if uh, if I ever came out with hey, it's someone's remaking pretty in pink, there would be riots in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> How dare remake you remake the Transformers all you want, but you leave John Hughes alone. <laughs> How dare you remake John Hughes? No, I I, I I like that. I think I think the motivation was Steph. And this is where I kind of got that with Blaine and I never quite felt that connection and and maybe it was i was distracted by mccarthy's eyes always widening and just when i didn't think they'd get any wider they they'd get wider and i'm like ah it was just like la la land i i couldn't help but notice how small ryan gosling's ears were but um i <laughs> i never noticed that i i'll have to go back and check that out damn it oh <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think Steph's fascination with her was the fact that Steph knew where she was as far as the hierarchy goes, as far as the, you know, uh, economically, you know, she she's from a lower middle class family. And I think Steph pursued her because 
she would have nothing to do with him and it just didn't he, the whole movie it, it just doesn't equate with him either her not wanting him because he's the rich slick guy with the big house which she yeah. literally was drooling over with ducky at one point when they're driving through the neighborhood it's the same house you know uh, and also he's he's frustrated with his friend not you know why do you want to be with her but secretly he wants to be with her solely yeah. probably because she wants nothing to do with his rich ass and he's like but i'm rich yeah. <laughs> you know what right. i so, yeah, there's even that part where Blaine confronts him and he has a realization. He's like, oh, you couldn't buy her. Like, right. you couldn't, whatever you, you just couldn't charm her or couldn't get her. So that bugged him. Yeah, yeah. because he was used to getting everything, um, you know. And then I think it what bugs, what bugs Blaine even more and that Blaine and um, Steph... I, and not uh, Blaine. What bugs Steph even more was that she actually goes out with Blaine when she was totally just icing Steph the whole time. So I think that got under Steph's skin as well because he's like, what the hell? You, you, you know, you're, yeah. you're, you're going for second rich guy, not the rich, rich guy, you know. <laughs> and maybe that's where some of his problems with Andy was, was the simple fact of he couldn't understand... How Blaine? So he gives Blaine even more shit about it because he's angry because why does she want this guy, <laughs> this yeah. rich guy versus me? Because all he you ever get from stuff is that he is materialistic, and eventually he does uh, grow up to be a drug dealer and ends up dealing to um, <laughs> Blaine's friends after he goes to college. What? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you, you mentioned the age, Ian, and this is another classic example. Uh, Tanya, we, we've seen it in a few of the movies we've talked about before, the age difference. Do you buy at all that any of these people outside of Andy is a high school kid? I mean, even the side characters. Oh, man. No. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when I was younger and didn't, and these were all people all older than me, like, I couldn't tell, you know? Sure. <laughs> but then, like, um, yeah, then seeing it as an adult looking back, it's like, wow. <laughs> no, they all look like adults. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I'm, like, sitting there going, uh, they look like college kids. Um, but, right. But did it, it didn't matter as much back then, uh, I don't think and it made sense kind of i guess but you know because these were names but uh does does that change how you uh look at the film now at all together or is it still endear is this a film still endeared to you even looking at them now and going wow this is like watching college not high school you know i i think i think you're right because there of the time that was very common mm -hmm. to have older people playing high school and so it felt I mean it just there's a certain acceptance of it because I've you've seen it so many times I've seen it so many times um that there is just a certain acceptance it was it was just a little more of a moment where it's like oh interesting I never thought of that <laughs> but, but yeah I mean you in the 80s you just see that time and time again right and so it's just kind of something that I've 
kind of accepted. <laughs> what about you, you, Ian, with the 80s films? Does it does it take away your experience a little bit when you look at them now and you go, wow, that that's like a full-on beard for that 16-year-old? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Some, yeah, this is definitely one of the more egregious examples of that. Um, occasionally what will happen is I'll notice that some of the extras, like if there's a, a high school classroom scene, I'll look in the back and like, oh, that guy's been held back several decades (laughs) um but for the most part i can let it go i mean i also grew up in you know watching 90210 and i'm constantly reminded of this great simpsons gag where they had luke perry guest starring and he shows up and lisa simpson has a crush on him or something and they show him and he's like this kind of smooth fresh-faced you know passing for high school kid but then he smiles instead of just doing the, the smoldering pout. And when he smiles, he gets like 90 wrinkles in his forehead and around his mouth and everything. He's like, oh, that's right, this guy's 30 years old playing, you know, a, a sophomore. Um, so, yeah, it, it didn't bother me that much. The other thing that might be kind of weird about Pretty in Pink in terms of the age is that we do spend a lot of time with the uh, the – you know, the rich kids and they're all like wearing these white linen suits and, and they, they wear button downs to class. So they already look far. They're dressing far older than their than their age, mm-hmm. which doesn't help. Well, I mean, that, that was a classic style in the 80s, though, was was dressing adult, if you will, you yeah. know. You know, kind of. Uh, I mean, Annie Potts' uh, character. You know, Iona. The way she dresses in here was a lot of the way that '80s fashion was back then. That I remember. You know, uh, dressing in, in, in suits and and up, but not too up, but up a little bit more than your age. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's um, speaking of Annie Potts. Uh, this was two years after Ghostbusters, and I don't know if you caught this, but. When she answers the phone in the record shop, she goes, "Tracks, what do you want?" Yeah, like <laughs> <laughs> that's that's wonderful. I don't know if that's an ad lib or if John Hughes just is a Ghostbusters fan, but that was I, I appreciated that touch. <laughs> um, plus, Annie Potts when she does her makeover, like everybody gets a makeover in this movie, um, but she dresses you know kind of yuppie-ish as she describes it to go out with that that one guy, and she looked amazing. Like, uh, you know, is it, more of a like a oddly punk conservative look uh, that I was really into. I'm like, yeah, I kind of have a thing for a new thing for Annie Potts now. Actually, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say the same thing. When she was in that outfit, I'm like, damn, Annie? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that, that's an awesome outfit. And I shouldn't be noticing these things while watching this movie, but I'm looking at it going, <laughs> you, you know, because I think we're all used to kind of her most iconic one of her most ironic uh, iconic roles which was <laughs> ironic uh iconic roles which is uh you know the the receptionist for ghostbusters and her attitude and the way her character is here to see her being uh kind of an optimistic spunky uh uh character and then you know with a fashion sense it, it's just it was kind of it's just kind of you're like wow okay uh you know and for some reason she actually looks younger in here than she did in ghostbusters <laughs> so i don't know if it's just the way they had her outfits or whatnot or you know for her character or what but um yeah i mean i she does have a transformation as well in here uh though she still looks cool uh i i almost wanted to see more 
of her character because, you know, like I said, I, I got the feeling she was almost like that fun aunt, not quite mom role in Andy's life, but she does give motherly advice. Uh, yeah. But but she doesn't want to necessarily be a mom herself. Um, and, and she's only like nine years older than uh, Andrew McCarthy. So, you know, uh, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so she's not that oh. that that you know different in age, though they try to play it off. But uh, Tanya, what, what, do you think Ionis? Uh, she's kind of the mom, uh, a motherly figure for Andy in this. I think she's. I mean, maybe not quite a mom. I think you're right with more of the wacky aunt, but yeah. she is sort of the adult female figure mm-hmm. for her. And 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 I have to say that is one of the things that did throw me off watching this movie again now that I'm an older adult mm-hmm. is that she naturally I mean she looks younger than her age. Yeah, she always and, has, yeah. Yeah, and so having the the older kids playing the the teens and having a younger looking person play the older <laughs> woman, you know, <laughs> that was a little bit difficult because she doesn't look like she's old enough to be their moms. You know, there's no way. Yeah, it's 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 odd. I mean, the, we kind of touched on age throughout the episode, but I mean, if you look back at, at Andrew McCarthy, he's playing a high school senior in this movie. The next year, he's in Less Than Zero, where he's a high school graduate, <laughs> but he's also in Mannequin, where he's like supposed to be playing his age, which is like 25, 27. Uh, so he just, I don't know what's going on with that guy. Um, but I do, I do want to ask, uh, real quick because it occurred to me while we were talking that, um, in this movie, Molly Ringwald's character plays the exact polar opposite archetype from what she played in the breakfast club. Cause in the breakfast club, she was the rich kid that, you know, Judd Nelson was kind of rebelling against. Uh, so that dynamic changed, but I, I bought her in both roles which is kind of strange because she was kind of iconic in in breakfast club and a couple years later she's doing this other thing but there wasn't i didn't have to do any kind of like a a track shift to get on board with what she was uh doing and i think that's a credit again to the writing but also to her performance because she's playing a similar kind of character someone who's got a certain status but is sort of uncomfortable with it and is relying on other people to help bring her out of uh, her own prejudices, her own shell, and also accept herself on a lot of different levels. Um, what do you guys think about, about that? Ooh, Tanya. Um, I have, you know, I've always liked her. Um, I always felt like she was really a natural actress and I do buy her in, um, her multiple roles. And I always kind of felt like I wish that she would have had more, meaty material after the teen stuff Mm. and was, you know, kind of disappointed that that didn't really happen for her. I mean, I have no idea what happened in her life or whatever, but um, yeah, I always just felt like she was so natural and I just felt like she embodied whatever character she played. And um, yeah. And so I, yeah, I I wish maybe someday she'll have some more meaty stuff for, but I really don't know. Well, well, what happened to her was Fresh Horses. Let's face it. Fresh Horses came out. And suddenly nobody hired her anymore. No, just kidding. Uh, you know, she had, still had a career after Fresh Horses. But, um, no, I, I buy her in both. I always liked her performances, uh, anything I saw her in. She, she you know, I, I, I especially liked her, okay, 
I'm that guy. You guys can think lowly of me. I liked her in Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Okay, I admit it. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> All right. She did, no she, judgments here, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she did that before 16 Candles, before she was kind of the brat pack. But I think her career, that's the thing is, a good majority of the quote-unquote brat pack were really good. And then it was like they kind of dropped off the map when they actually got older to where they couldn't mm-hmm. play teens anymore. But they're all very talented performers. But suddenly they weren't quite getting the top billing anymore. I mean, classic example is you look at flatliners for crying out loud, right? And how many of like younger scars, if you will, younger in quotes, are in that. But a lot of the a lot of them from the Brad Pack just kind of drop off the map and aren't headliners anymore. And maybe it's because the sign of the times, you know, they were associated so much with teen. Uh, you know, teen the teen movies that no one would buy into. You know, the Mark Hamill syndrome. Nobody saw them other than <laughs> the high school kids, and they're like, "Well, you can't now because you're older than my kid at home." So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it is a yeah, shame. I mean, Go ahead. I was going to say Molly Ringwald. She would. She continued to act. Um, you know, in, in bit things here and there. But uh, she had uh, kind of a resurgence in television mm-hmm. years later. She was on this uh, TV show I used to watch, and I'll admit that here, uh, The Secret Life of the American Teenager, where she played the, she played the mom to mm-hmm. you know, the teenage girl who got pregnant. That was kind of the launching point for the show. She's also, I guess, uh, on the, the Riverdale, the, the Archie CW series, um, playing Mary Andrews, which I haven't seen uh, you know, her in that. But uh, she wrote a book, I guess, like a, an autobiography a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, could, I, I have it. I should probably go back and find out exactly <laughs> what she was doing. <laughs> um, I, I confess, I went to a, a book signing back when they still had Borders Books and Music, when that was a thing. Um, and I, it was just mostly a fascination of like seeing Molly Ringwald in person, but I never actually read the book. <laughs> but yeah, I know it, she moved to France and lived in France for a number of years and did some movies there. Mm-hmm. And she also became a um, like a cabaret singer. But I don't know much about it. It's just stuff that I've heard. Well, because she Ooh. she played jazz, I think, right? She's a uh, or her dad was a jazz uh, pianist, so she's got music in her uh, blood. Uh, for sure. Um, but I could see her doing that uh, for a while, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it is a shame that a lot, a, a number of these performers, they kind of dropped out for a while and then had their resurgence later, uh, in other venues, but, uh, all talented individuals and, you know, you've got them in here. I mean, James Spader, like we all mentioned already made a career of playing the, the, creepy role which was always odd to see him then in stargate which i love him in that you're like wait he's playing he's playing the geeky nerd this time what he's he's not the asshole what and that and that was only like 10 years after his 80s heyday i mean that's the yeah yeah yeah, you know, and you look at like Rob Lowe. You know, he mm-hmm. certainly had a bunch of uh, ups and downs, but he keeps coming back with like these mini resurgences. Like he was in Wayne's World, and then The West Wing, and he's like <laughs> kind of like whack him, whack him all, Rob Lowe. 
he, he does. He just pops up, and everybody loves him when he's in a role that he pops up, and then he disappears for a while, and it's like, where'd Rob Logo? Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I think... Well, the, there, was, there, was one, there was one movie he was in that he got into a spot of trouble that not a lot of people loved, but uh, that was very early 90s. I don't know if you ever remember that tape. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we've we've heard of the, the tape, um, but yeah, I mean, so you've got the brat pack in here, and we bring it up because this film is in that vein. He, Hughes had kind of that similar cast through most of his, uh, you know, a lot of his films. We we had various combinations of these these performers, and I think the only one that who really didn't really come back from any of it was um, <laughs> was uh, uh, Judd Nelson. <laughs> I don't think Judd ever really had a resurgence uh, too much. But the rest of them, yeah, they dropped off for a while and then eventually came back, but not quite where they were at this time in the 80s to where they were pretty much in everything. Which, you know, I I guess uh, we wrap it up a little bit here for the night, but I've got to ask the question. It's kind of in relation to Pretty in Pink, but just in general. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll start with Ian. Ian, what was it about the 80s? that they appealed everything to high schoolers because you look at the pop culture now and that you look at it, it's kind of all over the place, but in the eighties, you look at everything, how much mainstream stuff was geared towards teens. What, what, what's up well, with that? I, I think I, um, I'm going to butcher this explanation. So feel free to look this up for yourselves. But, uh, I actually had heard about this, uh, years ago, but it was some. It was a lot to do with the economy and you know the the Reagan boom of the the 80s, where you had a lot of people. Certainly not everybody, but uh, you know the middle class and the upper middle class culture who had all of a sudden a lot of disposable income, mm-hmm. uh, and they realized that the the kids were buying a that they were buying a lot of products, and that's where you saw a lot of this consumerism materialism uh, pop up. So there's a lot of entertainment that was geared towards. Uh, towards teens um so yeah I, I guess that's it you saw a lot of you know toys and fast food and and movies and stuff it was all as much as we like to think of john hughes as an artist and he certainly was uh he would not have been able to work on these great canvases if it weren't serving a greater you know, <laughs> consumerist machine <laughs> that's for sure tanya what about you i mean you you remember the you know looking at a lot of 80s stuff i mean it's a lot of geared towards teenagers, and I don't think we see that much nowadays, do we? Um, I mean, I still, I still see some mm-hmm. stuff, you know, now. But yeah, I do remember that, and I have heard that before too. That it was a definite um, decision made based on the fact that you know, like a lot of kids had after-school jobs or whatever, and there was that disposable income that marketers wanted to tap into. I've definitely, I've heard that too. So. Um, mm. Yeah. I think there's something to that. Yeah, because I mean, I I occasionally listen to the top forty songs now, and I'm like, okay, yeah, but these songs aren't quite top forty like when I was a kid and a teenager. They mm-hmm. were all teenager themed related, high school and rebellion. It was like, you know, and then the movies too, Revenge of the Nerds and Pretty in Pink and Sixteen, all these teen related films that were mainstream, and you don't see that as much now in the mainstream and i just found found it fascinating i'm like wow you know never mind the fact the drinking ages kept changing so it's really really <laughs> weird to watch these films like we mentioned in the footloose episode where the 
you know, seniors in high school were drinking in a bar legally. And you're like, <laughs> what? I mean, even in here where they've got the bar where they stay. I mean, she doesn't drink, but she's 18 and they let her into the bar. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, you've got and- Andrew Dice Clay as the bouncer. So I, I, don't, I think it's just like loose morals in Elgin in 1986. <laughs> That that could very well be. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, well, it is Illinois, and it's close to Wisconsin. I mean, Wisconsin, yeah, that would have been natural. They wouldn't even have had a bouncer. They just would have let them in, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, but you are right about the economy. Um, opening weekend, this made nearly its budget back um, at $6 million for opening weekend, and it was made for a paltry $9 million. Apparently, it would go on to make forty million dollars. So, <laughs> wow! <laughs> yeah. Apparently, gross across the U.S. is is forty mil. Um, hey, real quick, and this kind of ties into that. But the the song, the big songs in this movie, the "If You Leave, Don't Look right. Back" or whatever. First of all, who does that? I, I know that OMD. I should know the OMD. Oh, uh, orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, OMG, it's OMD. But no, I, I liked uh, this. Is something I'd never caught until watching it last night. There's a scene where Ducky and Andy are driving in a car and they're like switching radio stations, mm-hmm. and that song comes on, and he's like, oh, I hate this song. It hurts the channel. <laughs> well, it's, it does have a great soundtrack, and uh, you know, I mentioned it last week in less than zero and it it's in this one too a lot of us i mean even me i'm guilty of it you kind of think of film and and you know uh licensed music or whatever and it kind of a lot of people think well there was pulp fiction and and look how good that worked with it and all that great soundtrack but then revisiting these 80s films i'm like a lot of these films actually had appropriate music on the soundtrack, it wasn't just random tracks, and in 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 I think I I, I think the soundtrack is solid too for Pretty in Pink. Uh, Tanya, what do you think of the soundtrack? I I know you're a musician as uh, well, and uh, what do you think of the soundtrack collection that they have for this film? I I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's really good. Um, I and what you were just saying, a lot of the '80s and like '80s teen movies and stuff, a lot of them had really good sort of edgy, arty, new wave type soundtracks. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was introduced to groups like Sparks mm-hmm. and um, I can't think of any other, but right. <laughs> like Sparks right. and, and um, you know, stuff like that where it's really interesting or like Oingo Boingo, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just really good music that I may not have had the exposure to uh, otherwise. And um, yeah, I don't know why the trend was for that except maybe there was a couple you know people working with the music licensing that had that good taste you know or something (laughs) but um (laughs) but i definitely i noticed that and that's where i was exposed to a lot of great music what about you ian in the soundtrack to pretty in pink and just kind of 80s soundtracks in general for like movies like this well you know time will tell if we have any of the movies that are targeted towards teens or younger audiences now that have the great soundtrack anthems. I go see these movies and it all just kind of blends together as this, Mm -hmm. you know, bland pop slash rap that all sounds the same. The great thing about the eighties movies that we're talking about, especially the John Hughes ones is they all had these great 
anthems, you know, one, sometimes two or three songs coming out of these films that just stuck with you and defined these movies for a generation. Now, that's one of the things I loved about uh, Donnie Darko, which came mm-hmm. out in 2001, but it definitely felt like it was trying to be a 1980s feeling of a film, and they really got, I think, the soundtrack right on that by using you know some some 80s music in there. Uh, so yeah, I, I lament the fact that we're you know 35 years on or whatever, and we seem to have regressed rather than come up with the the new generation stuff for the new generation to latch onto. Nowadays, movies reference John Hughes films kind of ironically because they don't really have anything to say for themselves. Yeah, there there is that. I mean, the references to Hughes and that are almost are are done kind of as punchlines a lot of times, um, or yeah, just. Uh, off-handed comments and the music yeah i mean i I hate to sound like that old guy get off my lawn but it is a simple fact (laughs) of you've got albums and soundtracks and you had them back then too but not nearly as much i think nowadays to where like avengers i have an avengers soundtrack that has vocal songs on it none of them were in the movie they were all During the credits, you know, Um, (laughs) they weren't even, you know, but here, yeah, I mean, Pretty in Pink uh, has a couple of tracks in here that were also played on the radio. Um, I mean, come on, freaking Breakfast Club, don't you forget about me. I mean, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if if there was ever a song that summed up an entire movie, (laughs) (laughs) like you said, an anthem. And and you had those, especially in these teen films. They managed to pick f- songs that were anthems, and then of course they'd play on the radio. Um, you know, uh, Don and I, when we did the episode for White Nights, you know, there's songs there, songs in the movies uh, would play on the radio, and you got that a lot more back then. And I, I'm going to put it out there: it, it's no slam on everything. It's just the the progression of media. But I think it's because the internet and you have access to so many more options. I mean, we didn't have that in the 80s. So you got Mm -hmm. a pop song in the movie because they wanted you to connect that movie. You know, you heard that song and then you heard it on the radio. So then you'd go buy the album (laughs) because that's the only way you could hear it. (laughs) Yeah. And now I don't even know if people buy albums anymore if they just <laughs> stream everything like on spotify and, and youtube here here's my bid for old man status um but uh yeah there, there were i guess upsides to that consumerism because as you said mark there'd be a, a movie that people connected with and a song people connected with that would you know drive radio play and then also drive people to go out and buy the the soundtrack albums mm-hmm. you know it's this it's this consumer circle that possibly is one of the reasons that these songs are so stuck in our heads because they were ubiquitous because people had product to sell. Um, but I don't even know if soundtracks are really a big thing now. It seems more like uh, score-oriented uh, than anything else, which I'm fine with too. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm a soundtrack guy, so I have no problem with the resurgence of movie scores as long as they're decent, uh, But uh, <laughs> which uh, many of them are out there, but there is more of a resurgence of scores versus in the 80s when scores were the hard thing to find. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it, you're right, it is a circle of consumerism that I think is not now out there because there's so many options. Would you say that, Tanya, maybe the fact we have so many options when back when we were kids, you didn't have as many outlets to get access to these songs that you heard in the movies or on the radio? 
Right, right. I mean, and you can go back further and say that, you know, when there are only two or three stations, everyone's listening to the same stuff. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I have to say there's something cool about the fact that everybody knows a song. Right. Every, you know, but at the same time, I'm glad that I have more options to <laughs> find that are more, uh, you know, tailored towards what my tastes, you know. But you do kind of lose that. Um yeah. yeah, we've kind of lost that a little bit, I think, now. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, in the 80s, there were a lot of songs from movies that I actually really liked, and I still <laughs> really liked it. It kind of worked in my favor in that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just it was just a different uh, approach to things. And, and now that I'm not complaining that there's options nowadays, but I'm thinking you lo- you do lose a little, and that's why... You know, you you don't necessarily have a brat pack nowadays, or you know, we we don't exactly have a really iconic actor nowadays like we did back then because um, you've got so many options now. There's so many movies and so many things that you know it, it kind of they're out there. But unless you get Robert Downey Jr. in every single Marvel film, well then okay, you know you've got. <laughs> You've got your performer, but, you know, bringing it kind of back around to Pretty in Pink, one of the reasons I think, not only just because it's Hughes' script, but it one of those things is you didn't quite have as many options, so you would go to the theater to see films that related to you, that you identified with, and Pretty in Pink was one of those films. And, yeah, the teens, we had disposable money because our parents, who were baby boomers, uh, forced us to get jobs. Uh, they're like, <laughs> I don't want you in the house. You're 16. Go get a job. And so suddenly, <laughs> suddenly you've got money, and you're like, What am I going to do with it? You know what? I'm going to go to a movie. But what movie am I going to see? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go see this teen movie because hey, I'm a teenager. So yeah, uh, Pretty in Pink though. I I think uh, we'll wrap it up here and uh, I get your guys' final thoughts unless there's uh, something we didn't cover that maybe you wanted to touch on. Tanya, was there anything? No, I think okay. we pretty much covered it all. Uh, Ian, was there anything you maybe wanted to bring up yet? Um, just one quick thing. Sure. The navy blue gym jumpers that they wore in class, uh, in gym <laughs> class, those were pretty, they were like auto mechanics slash gymnastics outfits. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, and I, I did like the fact that we got to see a very young Gina Gershon in that gym class scene. Yes. Uh, along with uh, Dweezil Zappa, uh, very mm-hmm. briefly. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those those gems of watching uh, 80s movies. I know when you were talking about the Cotton Club a few weeks ago, you were mentioning yeah. all the, the crazy cameos that would pop up. That That's one of the treats that I like to come back to. Um, but yeah, other than that, um, I do wish that we had a brat pack now we might have a brat pack and i'm just too old and busy to notice but i don't <laughs> I, I don't see it on the landscape yeah yeah i i, I don't either uh we've got you know a, a superhero pack but that's kind of like almost forced <laughs> on everybody uh it's not just like a natural uh, uh progression of, of seeing them everywhere so uh yeah right. it, it, I, I don't think you're missing it. I think it's just there's so many options nowadays that uh, those get a little lost and you don't have just those people popping up because there's so many names out there now. So, uh, yeah, and there's it's always great going to these 80s films and seeing so many familiar faces that you, you didn't realize were in these films. It's like, 
yeah, you mentioned you know, when I saw Cotton Club, I'm like, holy crap, Mario Van Peebles in a minor <laughs> dancer role. What the hell? You know, or even in this, Andrew Dice Clay in a minor, you know, bouncer role. What the hell? <laughs> or Dweezil Zappa or, you know. Uh, yeah, so that's why these, these films are fun. And I think this is a film that can still relate to uh, its age group, even though the actors aren't that age. But the, the themes in here, I think, still pertain to today, which makes uh, Hughes films uh, why I think they're classics is because they do still have themes that can relate regardless of when you watch, you know, when they come out or when teenagers watch them. They are, there's always something in there that you can relate to, which is odd to see a guy an old older man be able to write films like that that you know touch teen you know that that, tap into that teen themes so much i'm not quite sure how but uh i'm glad he is because we get films like like these like the breakfast club and pretty in pink and 16 candles and all of those so uh yeah just uh we'll go down now and uh why don't you give your final thought with uh, Pretty in Pink, and if you would recommend it to anyone. So we'll start with you, Ian. Uh, yes, I would. I would definitely recommend it. Um, you know, it, people. It, I don't necessarily think it's one of the things, the films that people immediately jump to when they think of John Hughes. Um, there's some definitely more popular heavy hitters that that you've mentioned, Mark. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about on the show. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely worthwhile. It's got some great performances, especially in the supporting cast. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think I've pretty much expended all the yeah, pretty sure. pink <laughs> wisdom tonight, but uh, I definitely appreciate the chance to, to talk with you. You bet. Well, I'm glad that I finally have you on the show. So, uh, and Tanya, how about you, your final thought and, and who you recommended to? Um, you know, I saw an interview with, and I think it was Molly Ringwald, but it was one of the actors that John Hughes, um, worked with many times, I believe Molly Ringwald was saying something about how they felt that John Hughes had gone through some of the like misfit stuff in high Mm -hmm. school and been teased and that kind of thing. And that he very much um, had very strong memories of all the stuff that he went through and he brought that to his scripts. And so he was very much in the head of like, um, you know, the teenage world and the high school world. And that's where he drew from. Mm-hmm. And that's why his um, scripts are so rich, because they are from his personal experiences. And um, I and I definitely think this script is rich. I mean, I would recommend it to people. You know, if you like, like kind of like high school romancy or romancy kind of films, it definitely fits that. Mm-hmm. But because of the other relationships, the other relationships like with Andy and Iona, Andy and Ducky, and in her dad. Mm-hmm. Because of all the little details and the other relationships, it definitely transcends that. And um, people that like, you know, dramas or like kind of movies with a little bit more character and a little bit more relationship than your typical romance, I think would also like this film. Awesome. And I agree agree with both you on that uh, 100%. And also the fact of folks... Don't worry, this isn't a film from the, the 2010s or whatever, so it's only 97 <laughs> minutes long. So, <laughs> it, it, it's a drama that's only 97 minutes long, so God bless it, if nothing else, for the freaking runtime. <laughs> I had that with Less Than Zero, too. I was looking at Less Than Zero, and I'm like, man, I'm like, 
all these dramas with the run times that they have, you know, less than two hours. What the heck? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like you, we kind of forget that back then. And I, I, I kind of like, you know, watching a movie and, and having still the rest of my night available so but well that's that's that wonderful 80s consumerism you have shorter films so you can have more of them at the multi uh, (laughs) more showings at the multiplex right well the multiplex for sure wasn't that uh uh we didn't have as many screens back then so you needed to oh sure yes that's true you definitely needed to cycle through them more uh so but uh yeah i I agree with all of you. Uh, so, folks, check this out. Uh, if you're a Hughes fan, check it out. Not necessarily mainly for the main story. It may sound weird, but definitely with the supporting cast and side stories you've got going on in the subplots, uh, really make it more interesting than it might seem on the surface for some of you out there. Uh, and, yeah, it, it, it warning, though, it is nestled in the 80s. Uh, for, uh, for style and soundtrack, but not nearly as nestled in the 80s as some other films out there. So uh, we'll wrap it up now, and this is the point where I give my fellow crew members here the license to shill. So, <laughs> Ian, uh, go ahead. The floor is yours to shill away. Um, well, you can find my uh, my movie podcast on uh, iTunes and Stitcher. It's uh, Kicking the Seat. Uh, you can also find me at kickseat.com or right now it's kickseat.squarespace.com because I'm <laughs> migrating my, my site to a new platform. So it's kind of wonky. Uh, but yeah, I do new podcasts uh, two to three times a week and um, occasionally I'll do written reviews. Awesome. Fantastic. And Tanya, go ahead, shill what you can talk about away. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I'm still in the same position, but. I've got um, working on a couple features, finishing up and getting them out there for this year. And I've just finished a script with filmmaker Joseph Vogley called Ryan Fielding, which is a vampire script, which we're going to hopefully produce once I finish these other things that I'm doing. Um, I'm all over the internet. Uh, Tanya Atomic, T-O-N-J-I-A Atomic. Find me under that name. She's got a great YouTube channel. You should check it out. She gets great interviews. So, uh, and and just a very cool channel as well. So, uh, head on over there. Give uh, that channel some subs. So we can't we can't forget your YouTube channel, uh, which I I fully admit uh, I'm going to admit to my whole crew and everything. I dropped the ball on something. So uh, Tanya and I want to work on something together, and I totally dropped the ball on it. And I have to apologize to Tanya here in front of everybody. <laughs> I am sorry, Tanya, uh, but <laughs> look for look for that soon, folks. And uh, yeah, thank you for taking uh, this trip. And next week's film is going to definitely be an interesting one because uh, the next week's film is going to be Amazon Women on the Moon. So how does Yay. that connect to Pretty in the Pink? Well, you'll have to tune in next time to find out. So until then, we'll just say a good night, everyone. Good night. Hey, all my friends out there looking for more spoiler room goodness? Then why don't you check out our brand new Patreon page, patreon.com slash specialmarkproductions, where you can get access to exclusive spoiler room episodes and a whole lot more. You can also find us on Facebook groups at SMPRD and on to Twitter at SpecialMarkPro. Let your voice be heard and let us know what you would like to see in the spoiler room as well as just how we're doing in general. We appreciate your support and remember in the spoiler room the conversation is fresh but we do spoil the movies.